At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying his word together. God created us for community, and with community comes conflict. It seems ever-present in our day-to-day lives, from little things to big things. In today's society, cancel culture is prevalent, and when there's conflict in our lives, it can be easy to turn to the ways of canceling one another. Knowing how to resolve conflict lovingly is an essential component of our lives. When we resolve conflicts out of love, we honor Christ. Join us in our new series, Conflicted, Pursuing Peace in a Cancel Culture, where we'll turn to the Gospel of Matthew to see what Jesus has to say about handling conflict. On September, uh, in September of 2018, just, just five years ago, a Dallas police officer by the name of Amber Geiger came home from work. And she entered what she thought was her apartment, but mistakenly entered a neighboring apartment, uh, thinking it was her own. When she entered, she saw a black man inside the apartment, and she drew her firearm. She shot the man, she killed him on the spot. The man, it turned out to be, was an unarmed neighbor. His name was Botham Jean, and all he was doing was watching television in his own home. Amber was arrested. She was uh, tried, and at her trial, she was convicted and sentenced to 10 years in prison for murder. Shortly after her sentencing, the jury, and shortly after the jury read the verdict, the brother of her victim, Brant Botham, asked the judge if if he could address Amber, his brother's murderer. The judge allowed him to speak, and so he, he turned to Amber, and he said to her, I don't want to say twice or, or for the hundredth time what you've or how much you've taken from us. I think you know that. He said, but if you're truly sorry, I, I know I can speak for myself. I forgive you. I love you just like anyone else. I personally want the best for you. And then he stepped off the witness stand, and he came down front and walked over to Amber, and he hugged her. Now that, through, her, through his words and through his actions, was absolutely shocking. It stunned the courtroom, it stunned Amber, it stunned the watching world, and the media reported about it as well. We are stunned and shocked by the act and the words of forgiveness. Forgiveness shocks us. And and we could ask ourselves the question, how could an individual who just lost his brother in a senseless murder, how could he go back to the offender, embrace her, and tell her, I forgive you? What what would you do if you were in Brant Botham's shoes? How would you respond to this person who murdered your brother? who hurt and wronged you deeply? That's the question that we've been asking often in this series. What do we do when we are hurt, when we are wronged, when we are offended and, and even sinned against? How do we respond to the world and the people around us? Last week we heard Jesus' teaching about how we are to pursue repentance and reconciliation, especially within the church with believers with one another when we sin against one another. We are to pursue re- reconciliation and repentance. But the question often comes to our minds, 
How far do I go with that? How often do I do that? I mean, when do we get to cancel other people? How long is it that we should just keep taking it and forgiving someone when they wrong us again and again? Well, that's not a new question, uh, really at all. It's a question that's been asked really since day one, if you will. But it's a question that Peter had the boldness to ask Jesus about. He's just heard Jesus teaching to pursue repentance and reconciliation. And he's like, okay, how far does this go? I mean, really, how much longer do I have to keep forgiving somebody who continually wrongs me again and again and again? How deep does that happen? And so when he heard Jesus' teaching, he, he had the courage to ask him, and this is Matthew 18, 21, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? How often? As many as seven times, he even ventures a guess and an answer. He's like, seven times? Is that, is that the completion of it? Is that enough? Peter wants to know how long we should forgive and put up with someone else. And, and in Peter's account, he's even gracious in comparison to the customs of his day. The Jewish custom and teaching at that moment was a person was to forgive someone else no more than three times. So Peter's like, okay, Jesus is a little bit better and greater than what else is going around. Uh, perhaps we'll just double what Jewish custom is and add one. We'll go for seven. It's a perfect number. It's a complete number. That, that should be good, right? Seven times. But Jesus' answer shocks us. I think it certainly shocked Peter. Jesus said to him, verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And now translators could, could wrestle with this. They could say, well, Jesus is saying 77 times, or they could, Jesus could be saying 70 times seven. So is it 77 or 490? I don't think it matters. I think the point is very, very clear. It's not a matter of keeping score and tracking how many times you've forgiven someone. It's not like you should have a little notepad with somebody's name next to it and just a little jot mark for every time they sin against you. And hopefully you'll tally up to 490 and then after that you can be done with them or 78 like, okay, it's cancel time, baby, and just strike them out. The number is a figure of speech to point to unlimited unceasing, unending forgiveness. I mean, really, if you're keeping track or keeping score right now at home, uh, you should probably stop. It's a little excessive, don't you think? Jesus's shocking answer is that forgiveness should be extended without keeping a record of wrong or account. I mean, that's what love is, right? First Corinthians 13, love keeps no record of wrongs. Forgiveness has no ceiling on it according to Jesus. So for the follower of Christ, for the disciple of Jesus, forgiveness is part of who we are and how we act and relate to others around us. Jesus' shocking teaching is that God's family forgives as they have been forgiven. Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, the family of God are people who forgive as they have been forgiven. And, and we'll see here from Jesus' teaching at the rest of Matthew 18, this forgiveness in the life of a Christian is absolutely necessary. It is absolutely necessary for a follower of Jesus to be a person who forgives. Because if you're part of God's family, then you forgive as you have been forgiven. It's so necessary that I would contend even this morning that if you cannot forgive others, if you do not forgive those who sin against you and hurt you, you likely don't understand God's own forgiveness of you and perhaps you may not have received it. 
Forgiveness is the true mark of a person who knows and understands the gospel. Let me say that again. Forgiveness is the true mark. It is the real evidence of a person who knows and understands and has received and is living out the gospel itself because God's family forgives as they have been forgiven. Now that's shocking. I get it. And you might say, well, why is this so necessary? I mean, this is a this is a tall order. Why is forgiveness necessary in my life? Why is it part of the family thing? Well, Jesus here in verses 23 to 35, he does what he does so well. That is, he tells a story. He doesn't just lay out a, a statement and say, here it is. You play with it and figure it out. He says, let me help you picture it. Help, let me help you get it into your heart and your mind and realize the life that is behind this. And in telling this story, Jesus gives two reasons why forgiveness is necessary. The first reason that forgiveness is necessary for the follower of Christ because God's family forgives as they have been forgiven, the first reason is because we have been forgiven much. Jesus starts with just us as the recipients of forgiveness. In the midst of his shocking statement of unceasing, unlimited, no ceiling forgiveness, Jesus helps us by getting at the heart of it with a story. In it, he makes a, a comparison of sorts. He says in verse 23, the kingdom of heaven may be compared. So it's like, okay, it's not an exact correlation, but you can get a sense of this. You can, if you embody and feel this story out, you will live it and you will get what the kingdom of heaven, the way of the kingdom of heaven is truly like. So it's like this, he says. It's compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. The story begins with us meeting a king who is settling the books. And he's settling the books with his servants. He wants to square up on the accounts, settle up on the loans and the debts that he's given out. He's like, okay, it's, it's a reckoning time. Let's just make sure all the ledgers are, are straight and clear. And Jesus says that when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. So this one servant in particular, they're doing the books, and Jesus says, this guy is brought before, and the books are open. Right, here's the ledger. Here's where you stand. And buddy, you got a huge debt. Says he owes 10,000 talents. You might say, well, what's a talent? How many? This is a unit of money, but what does that look like? Well, this is where little, little footnotes and little uh, translation uh, marks in your Bible are really helpful as you try and read it on your own and interpret and understand it. In the English Standard Version, there's a, a footnote here that says that a talent is a monetary unit worth about 20 years' wages for a laborer. So one talent equals 20, 000, or 20 years' Uh, of labor. It's just his annual income. All right, so I know you didn't come to church to do math, but I'm sorry, today Jesus is forcing it upon us. He's got 20 years multiplied by 10,000. That's how he owns 10, he owes 10,000 talents. 20 years multiplied by that, what do you get? 200,000 years of labor to pay this off. 200,000. In modern currency, that's not billions of dollars, that's zillions of dollars. And this is the shock of the story. The guy owes a debt he will never, ever, ever, ever be able to pay off. As far as he's concerned, as far as we're concerned, it's an infinite debt. He'll never make a dent on it. And Jesus, he's got a little bit of a sense of humor, right? Okay, in verse 25, he's telling the story, he's like, since he could not pay... It's like he doesn't even give him a chance. Like there is no, there's no way in the world this guy is going to come up with that money. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, all that he had, and payment to be made. 
Now, Jesus doesn't give us the background details on why this guy incurred the debt or how he incurred the debt, just that it's there. There's no way he could pay it. And this is a reckoning moment. And so justice has to be served. This, everything this guy has to, be, has has to be liquidated. He and his family sold into slavery just as, as payment and recompense for what he's done, for the debt he's incurred. Punishment is coming for this man. And the servant knows this is a terrible outcome. Something has to be coming back to the king. He's going to be sold off. Everything he has, punished for his, his crimes and his, his debt. His life from here on out will be hell. The punishment will lay, levied on him will be difficult. So what does he do? Probably what any one of us would do. He pleads. Verse 26. The servant fell on his knees, imploring him. He, he gets to the ground and he begins to grovel. He, he lays himself out, prostrated himself before the master, groveling and bargaining and saying, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Like, just be patient, go slow with me. I'll pay it all back. You see how ridiculous that statement is? Okay, let me just, let's remember, let me remind you of the math, right? This guy owes 200,000 years worth of labor. Okay, so if you just take one, one life career, okay, 50 years, you labor at something. Let's just break that down. He's got 4,000 lifetimes, 4,000 careers to try and pay back this debt. And that's what he's offering. Be patient with me. Slow the roll, and I'll pay back everything. I'll give it all back. I think of this guy, like in some of the movies with mobsters that are there, like this guy is a, is a stooge. It's just way in over his head with the mob. He's taking out a big loan, and the mob boss is like, it's time to pay it back. And, and this guy is just going to, you know, he's going to either pay it back or he's going to get whacked. And you just see him sweating blood and, and just trembling all over and pleading for mercy and saying, Johnny, I'll get you your money. I'll get you your money. I'll pay it all back. Except everybody knows he's not going to get any of the money. He's not going to be able to pay it back. Now, in our stories, this is where you'd expect the mob boss to start breaking fingers or, or worse, knock him off and toss his body in the river or whatever. But Jesus' story here takes another shocking turn. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. The master is moved. He is, the word pity there means from, from the core, from the gut. Like he, he has such deep compassion on this guy. He is moved by his plight, moved by the servant and his debt. He feels all the feels. And, and he, he releases him. He, he lets him go. He's like, okay. Frees him up from the debt and forgave him the debt. You don't owe a cent. You're forgiven, cleared. The record is clean. The accounting has been done. It's, it's, it's even. It's blank. You're free. Go. Enjoy your life. Nothing's owed. What? I mean, do you sense the shock of that? This guy is, the, the master is just utterly compassionate and merciful. He's pitying this man and he liberates him. And here's the servant. Now he hears those words and he's like utterly freed. He doesn't stand under obligation to that master and that debt any longer. 
If you've ever paid off any debt that you've had before or been forgiven a debt or been given a a generous gift that just helps you, you just kind of, like, you remember the spring of joy, the the weight lifted off your shoulders, the relief that comes with that? That's what this servant is feeling. He had an unlimited debt, and that debt's completely wiped out and gone. I mean, in his mind, he's like a rich man now. His shoulders loosen up. I think he's just getting off, like, he's not just coming up from the floor slow. He is like rocket through the roof excited. The headache disappears. The countenance is raised. I mean, life from that moment on looks incredibly brilliant and good. Now, now this is a parable for us here. Jesus is comparing the kingdom of heaven to this story. And we should ask, what's the comparison? How is this like the kingdom of heaven? We need to see ourselves in this story because we're here. We're not the master, by the way. Okay, we don't, Nobody gets to play that role in this story. We're the servant. We're the debtor. You and I are the ones who have incurred an insurmountable and infinite death, debt that we have no chance of paying off. Our sin is that debt. Our sin is our failure to love God and to follow his commandments. And and by our continual rebellion, our continual sin, our continual depravity, our continual walking away from God, we keep sinking in the debt of sin deeper and deeper and deeper. I think the accounting metaphor is fitting here because Peter asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive someone who sins against me? And then Jesus starts talking about debts. You see, sin puts us in debt to the person that we sin against. We take from them, we injure them, we hurt them, and all of a sudden, they are owed something. Scripture reminds us, even though we sin against each other, we we inflict these debts and these wounds upon one another, our sin ultimately is sin against the Lord himself, against you, David said, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. All of our sins ultimately are against God. And so his infinite glory and his nature is offended against regularly by our thoughts, by our actions, by our attitudes, by our words. We we just are racking up an infinite debt because we're sinning against an infinitely glorious being. Now, if you see that in your life, if you come to an awareness of your sin and the debt you've incurred, and, and the judgment that is coming for you, the day of reckoning that will happen, you probably are going to try and plead like the servant here. I mean, how many of us go to God when we recognize we're wrong or we're in trouble and we say, God, be patient with me. I'll pay it all back. I'll pay it all off. Like, if you do this, God, then I'll do that. But even that prayer, that statement is misguided. Why? Because not a one of us can pay it off. We can't pay it off. We can't pay it back. That's why Jesus makes this statement so extreme. The math is so ridiculous. Friends, let me be clear here. There is not any amount of good works or righteous deeds you can do to settle up an infinite debt. You can't live enough lifetimes to pay back the debt of sin that you have incurred against God. I mean, to attempt that is like trying to toss pennies at a $5 zillion loan with compounding interest. You're not even going to pay off on the principal. 
You're never able to pay it off. And yet, how many of us are like this servant? Oh, God, I'll pay it off. Like, sometimes we get the equation in our head that, like, if we just do enough good deeds, we'll balance the scales. If we're a righteous enough person, everything will come out, even Stephen, in the end. We'll be fine. Like, maybe if we're good enough, God will owe us. But you, we're the servant here with an insurmountable debt. And the reckoning is coming. We cannot pay off this debt. But there's good news. We have one who has. Christ has. God here, the master in the story, is the one who is moved with pity towards our condition and our plight. He's the one who enacted the plan in which his son, Jesus Christ, would come and pay the debt of our sin fully and completely. Jesus did this by becoming a human being for us. That way he could represent God because he is fully God, but he could also represent humanity because he is fully human as well. So Jesus came and he settled the debt by living sinlessly on our behalf and then taking our place and taking our punishment, the wages of sin is death, and standing for us, dying on the cross on our behalf. Where our debt deserves death, Jesus took the payment. Jesus took the penalty. And so the Apostle Paul, reflecting on this in his letter to the Colossians, says, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Friends, the good news is that God forgives everyone who comes to him and pleads for mercy, trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You cannot pay off that infinite debt. Jesus Christ has. And if you come to God with with repentance and faith, God no longer holds that debt of sin against you any longer. Because of who Jesus is and because of what he has done, you are forgiven. God has released you from the captivity and weight of the debt of your sin. God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. The debt is fully paid, fully canceled, not held against you any longer. When God sees you in Christ, he sees you as righteous and justified. He loves you. So you're a free person, liberated by the mercy and compassion of God towards you. Friends, that's why forgiveness is necessary for the Christian. Because we have been forgiven so much. If you, if you let this good news really take root in your heart, it will change the way you see people. God has forgiven you a great debt. All your hatred, all your rebellion against him, all your slander, all your disobedience, all your pride, all your lustful thoughts, all your betrayal, all your sneaking around, in Christ you are forgiven. And the more you recognize how odious your sin is and awful it is, how reprehensible your actions are, the more that you can revisit Christ canceling that debt, washing away your stain, cleansing your slate. And the more you see those two things, the more you will be able to forgive others. So we need an increased view of the sinfulness of sin, just how deplorable our offenses are against God. But we also need an increased view of of God's grace, 
how deeply he loves us, and he's given himself to rescue us and remove every offense from him that we've ever committed. This is why we can and must forgive, because God has forgiven us. That's reason number one, we have been forgiven much. God's family forgives because we have been forgiven much. But there's a second reason. The story has more shock and awe to it. The second reason is that forgiveness is the way of the kingdom. And Jesus just, he's going to surprise us here once again, and there's an even greater turn. You might think the master forgiving the servant is a pretty big deal. Hang on. Instead of the servant, you think about how did the servant, like, what was the rest of his life like? What was the rest of his day like? You just imagine being liberated and freed up with that kind of forgiveness? I mean, I think he'd be walking around the town, dancing like Ebenezer Scrooge through the streets of London after his ghostly visits. He would be so, he'd just be, he'd be so happy. He'd be so full of joy. But Jesus tells us this servant, that's not his attitude. That's not his case. Verse 28, when that same servant, okay, so Jesus doesn't want us to get confused. The same guy, same servant went out. He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Okay, what's, what's that? Let's use our footnotes here. A denarii was a day's wage for a laborer. So we, the servant who was forgiven finds this other guy who owes him money, and he comes up to him, and how much money does he owe him? Okay, again, a little more math. He owes him 100 denarii, which is a day's wage. So that's three, a little bit over three months' salary, 100 days. That's like, just to put it in our numbers today, it's like around, let's say, 30K, 30 grand. This guy's been forgiven an infinite debt. And he has another servant, another buddy who owes him 30 grand. What does he do with him? He says, he he goes and he seizes him. He grabs him by the shirt. He he wrestles him down and he begins to choke him. He's getting violent here. You, You sense his anger. And he says to him, pay me what you owe. I mean, he's just, he's just raging with anger and violence towards him. He wants justice. He wants vindication. Do you know what kind of actions are demonstrating here through his emotions? He's just demonstrating anger. This guy feels he's been wronged. He's the victim of great injustice by this other servant. And he's going to get it. He's going to take his pound of flesh out of this guy for the debt he's owed. I mean, he's yelling at him, pay me what you owe. What does the other servant do? I mean, how, how's this all gonna go down? The fellow servant, verse 29, fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Where have we heard that before? I mean, this is the irony of this story. He uses the very same words, the, the very same posture. He fell down. He pleads. He says, have patience with me. Like, guy, slow your roll. I will pay it back. I will pay it back. Any amount of recall here should have us with the servant in front of the master saying nearly the same thing. And yet, this small little debt, which could be repaid, it's there. So how would you think the servant would respond? Oh, whoa. I mean, just hearing those words, you're like, oh, you're right. I just, I've just been forgiven a lot. You know what? We're even. No worries. Go your way. And yet Jesus shocks us again. Verse 30. He refused. Puts his foot down. 
absolutely not. You'll pay it out. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. That is, he's going to get his money no matter what. When you, when you put a guy like this who owes a smaller amount in prison, you're, what you're really doing is forcing his friends and family to come up with the money, to show up with it, to get that guy out of prison and just to alleviate the debt. The forgiven servant is going to get his money. Now, Jesus tells us that the community around him saw this. I mean, it's just, it should be blowing our minds. Like, how are you so callous of heart? How are you so angry? His fellow servants saw what had taken place, and they were greatly distressed, as they should be. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. So they go back and they tell the master, like, this guy... He just totally didn't get it at all. You just, you gotta see this, you gotta hear it. And the master, he's like, okay. Verse 32, he summoned him back and he said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had had mercy on you? I mean, this servant is, he is wicked to the core. He's evil. And the master reminds him of the situation. And I think the word order here in the original language is really important. It shows the emphasis of what the master says to the servant. He says, all that debt, all that debt, I forgave you. He just puts the emphasis on the infinite amount he owed him and the reality that he wiped it clean. The master, he, he forgave the debt all the infinite debt I wiped away clean and forgave you merely because you pleaded with me and I had pity on you. He's asking, didn't that move you one bit? Didn't it, didn't it challenge your heart? I mean, didn't it hit, hit the center of who you are? And he asked the, the really important question, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? One greater had mercy on a lower and that lower should have had mercy on his equal. And he didn't. The master just said, you were primed for justice and you didn't extend mercy. You wanted your pound of flesh. And when you didn't get it, you came to grips with the reality that you owe me your very life. So the master says, so now instead of, instead of mercy, you get justice. You get vengeance. And Jesus says, in anger, righteous anger, his master delivered him to the jailers, literally the torturers, until he should pay all of his debt. It's never gonna happen. That is to say, he'll reap the consequences in punishment of his debt infinitely. And that's the end of the story. Well, doesn't that lift your spirit today, right? If we're honest, we probably don't feel good at the moment with the conclusion of this, and that's Jesus' point. He's challenging us. He says in verse 35, and he brings it home to our lives. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That's the message. Our ability to forgive or our lack of ability to forgive is an indication of the state of our hearts. If we do not forgive, if we cannot forgive, if we will not forgive from the heart, those who sin against us, I think it reveals we don't understand the gospel. Tim Keller, in his last book before he died, it's entitled Forgiveness, which I commend you to read, he comments about this. He says, if you believe the gospel that you are saved by sheer grace 
and the free forgiveness of God, and yet you still hold a grudge, at the very least it shows that you are blocking the actual effect of the gospel in your life. Or you're kidding yourself, and perhaps you don't believe the gospel at all. Either way, spiritually speaking, to not forgive somebody is to put yourself in a kind of jail. If we're able to forgive from the heart those who sin against us, it's a mark, it's evidence that shows we are comprehending God's forgiveness towards us, that we're living in step with the ways of the kingdom of heaven. So this, Jesus just masterfully exposes our hearts here, raises the big question, what is the state of your heart? If you have been forgiven, if you proclaim to have been forgiven an infinite debt by God, how in the world can you not forgive a lesser debt incurred by our brothers and sisters? Forgiveness is necessary because it's the way of the kingdom of heaven. Do you remember Peter's question that brought about this whole parable? Comes up to Jesus, how many times will I forgive my brother or sister or they sin against me? Seven times? Jesus answers him with another number. No, 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 not seven, 77. You think Jesus was just pulling numbers out of thin air? Like, what's a big number that's kind of perfect? We could just say, let's go for that. I don't. You see, what Jesus is trying to do here is to undo the age-old value of the kingdom of man. Since our first parents sinned, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, you find the ethic of vengeance. You find the ethic of canceling. You find the ethic of unforgiveness. Get your justice. Get your vindication. Jesus here is seeking to undo that curse. In Genesis chapter 4, we meet a man named Lamech. He was a great-great-grandson of Cain, the first murderer. Lamech had a rule of life about himself and about those who hurt him. He liked to boast. He boasted to his wives. He tells them, he said, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. That was just his pride. You come at me, you better not miss. You hurt me, I'm going to kill you. Look how strong and powerful I am. And that, friends, is the way of the kingdom of man. If you're hurt and sinned against, you seek vengeance. You get an eye for an eye. You get your pound of flesh. Lamech even boasts, if Cain is to be avenged seven times, that was God saying to Cain, listen, if they come after you and try and kill you, I'll avenge you seven times. Lamech says, if Cain's avenged seven times over, then for me, it'll be 77 times. This is exactly where Jesus got the number. He's undoing the way of the kingdom of man. The kingdom of man is vengeance and retribution, anger and violence, not just seven times against somebody who hurts you, but 70 times seven, infinitely. It's a cancel world and a cancel culture. But Jesus gives us a new way, the way of the kingdom of heaven. It's a way of mercy and compassion. It far extends the vengeance of the kingdom of man. It's not just forgiveness seven times, but forgiveness from the heart 77 times, or that is to say, infinitely. And it's based on God's own forgiveness of us. His son Jesus paying the price, dying even though we deserve death. It reverses the curse by not killing those who sin against us, but by pointing us to a Savior who was killed on our behalf and them to the mercy and forgiveness of God.
So are you walking in the ways of the kingdom of man? That's what this question is. Are you walking in the ways of the kingdom of man? Vengeance, violence, anger, canceling towards those who wrong and sin against you? Or as a disciple of Jesus, are you walking in the way of the kingdom of heaven? Forgiveness, mercy, compassion, because you see you have been forgiven much. You see, that is the way of the kingdom of heaven. God's family forgives as they have been forgiven. So maybe the question is, who do you need to extend forgiveness to? Who do you need to speak that to? Will you do that from the heart? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have forgiven us in Christ. You've canceled the debt. You've freed us from our sin. You've forgiven us in every way. Lord, give us a greater view of your grace. Keep in front of us your deep mercy and compassion. And Father, when we're sinned against, when we're wronged, keep your mercy and compassion in our view so that we might be people of mercy and compassion and forgiveness to those who wrong us. Change our hearts, O oh Lord. Make us a people of love that will shock the world because we display what you have done for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.